Well, we already sang a song this morning written by Martin Luther, and today we're going to talk about the freedom of the gospel. And I want to quote, as we begin, from his treatise on Christian liberty. A very famous quote. He begins by saying, A Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. And I actually think this captures this passage, that quote, very well. Because there's this tension between being subject to the things of this world. And yet, on the other hand, we're we're free. But on the other hand, we're free to serve, aren't we? We're liberated. This is Luther goes on and says, One thing and one alone is necessary for life justification, that is being right with God, and Christian liberty, and that is the most holy word of God, the gospel of Christ. As he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me shall never die. And also, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, there is no more cruel stroke of wrath of God than than when he sends a famine of the hearing of his word. Just as there is no greater favor from him than the sending forth of his word. Isn't, Isn't that a great insight? What could be more terrible than not hearing the word of God? That's the greatest famine of all. No famine compares with that. Luther goes on, Thus the believing soul, by the pledge of its faith in Christ, becomes free from all sin, fearless of death. That's what I want to be. I trust you want to be that too. Fearless of death because of Christ. Safe from hell and endowed with the eternal righteousness, life, and salvation of its husband, Christ. Thus he presents to himself a glorious bride, without spot or wrinkle. That's on the last day, isn't it? We'll have no spot or wrinkle when we're presented because of Christ. Cleansing her with the washing of water by the Word, that is, by faith in the Word of life, righteousness, and salvation. Thus he betrothes her to himself in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies. The book of Galatians focuses on this righteousness that is ours in Christ, this freedom we have in Christ, this justification we have in Christ, this life that we have in Christ, this this freedom of the gospel. And I see four different truths in this text. And the first one, it's at the back of the bulletin if you want to follow the outline, but you don't need to. This freedom is threatened by the Jerusalem leaders and the false brothers. I mean, this paragraph is a little bit difficult because it's threatened not only by the false brothers, but the Jerusalem leaders. Peter, Cephas, that's Peter. Peter, John, and, uh, and James, the brother of our Lord. So, so let's look at these verses again. Paul is emphasizing in these verses, isn't he, the independence of his gospel. That's why he begins by saying... I didn't go to Jerusalem for 14 more years after that brief visit he had with Peter, which we read about in the end of Galatians chapter 1. 
I didn't go up for 14 years because I didn't need, I didn't need the ratification of the apostles. I didn't need Peter, John, and James to say, your gospel is correct. That's why I waited 14 years. I went up with Barnabas, his missionary partner, taking along Titus. Taking along Titus is very significant, isn't it? Because Titus is a Gentile, a Greek, as it says in verse 3, but that means a Gentile, uncircumcised. Why did Paul go up? Because Peter and James and John summoned him to come to Jerusalem. You must come and explain your gospel. No, that wasn't the reason. He went up by a revelation given to him by God. God revealed to him, this is the time for you to come up. He didn't need to go up for his own sake of credibility or to have his gospel validated in terms of his own desires and heart. We're told in verse 2 that this was a private meeting before those who were influential. The influential in this passage, we'll come back to it, the influential are, are Peter, James, and John, the apostles. They're the influential in which he meet, met in a private meeting. Whether this is Acts 11 or Acts 15, that's debated. It doesn't really matter, though, for the meaning of, the, meaning of this passage. But why does Paul say, I mean, here's a puzzling thing. Paul's been so confident about his gospel. He says, now, I met with these men, Peter, James, and John. I met privately with them. And I, and I presented before them. I laid before them. I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. That's a very strange statement, is it not? Paul has been so confident in chapter 1 that his gospel is from God. Why does he say, I I set the gospel before them because perhaps I was running or am running in vain? That is, my work of the gospel has been futile. Well, what's going on there? That's, that's That's an exceedingly odd statement. Did Paul think in his heart of hearts, maybe... Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe I am preaching a false gospel. Maybe I do need to hear from Peter, James, and John so they can assure me my gospel is really from God. So I better consult with them. I better hear from them so that they can validate what I'm saying. Is that what's going on? I don't think that's what's going on. I think that'd be a dramatic misreading of everything he's said so far. He, he, Jesus Christ appeared to him on the Damascus Road and gave him the gospel, and he was absolutely sure this is the gospel. And that's why he's been preaching the gospel for 14 years since his conversion, at least, maybe 17 years, but at least 14. Depends on how you put the numbers together. He's been preaching the gospel for many years without needing any validation. And it isn't that all these years he was wondering, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe I'm off base. What do Peter, James, and John think of after all? That would contradict everything we've seen in chapter 1, where he didn't go to Jerusalem for three years. And then he spent two weeks with Peter. He didn't need Peter. He didn't consult with flesh and blood. So why does he say, maybe, maybe I had run or am running in vain? What is the purpose of this here? I think, the, I think what Paul is saying here is a very, it's a very nuanced kind of point. His work would 
be practically in vain if the Jerusalem apostles did not agree with him. Paul had no doubts about his gospel. But if the Jerusalem apostles did not agree with him, here's the scenario that would take place. Every time Paul went out to preach the gospel, people from Jerusalem would follow behind him and say, by the way, the apostles in Jerusalem don't agree with Paul. And then his ministry would be in vain practically. You see? Paul, Paul thinks of that scenario. Remember, these are human beings. He's not just looking at it from the standpoint of divine sovereignty, but human life. And he's saying, if the apostles disagree with me, my work is finished. Not, not that some wouldn't believe, but of course, everywhere he goes. Everywhere he goes. People would be dogging at his heels and saying, what do Peter, James, and John think? They don't agree. They don't hold to the same gospel. And then Paul's work would be practically in vain. Paul's mission would not succeed without the agreement of the Jerusalem apostles. But notice what Paul says here. The problem in Jerusalem did not come from the Jerusalem apostles. It came from the false brothers who wormed themselves in, who insidiously entered into the community. They're the ones... The false brothers are the ones who insisted that Gentile there, Titus, he needs to be circumcised according to the Old Testament. He needs to observe the Old Testament law to belong to the people of God. That's what the false brothers said. Notice verse 3. The Jerusalem apostles in the private meeting did not require Titus to be circumcised. They said he's free from what the law, the Old Testament law, requires for salvation. Keeping the law is not required for salvation. It's the false brothers who said you must be circumcised and observe the Old Testament law in order to be saved. And what does Paul say about the false brothers in verse 5? He said, I didn't listen to them for a second, not even for a moment. When they suggested the circumcision of Titus, I stood up, so to speak, and said, no way. No way will he be circumcised. No way are we going to impose the law on this Gentile. And the Jerusalem apostles agreed with that. So practically speaking, his gospel is validated and ratified by the Jerusalem apostles. That's practically important to him. It's practically important that all the apostles agree on the gospel. Remember, they lived in a real world, real life, and they encountered controversies. And this mattered. Notice what he says in verse 6. Those who were influential, that's Peter, James, and John, that's the apostles, they added nothing to me. I didn't need anything from them. I didn't need what they were teaching. Because I was already teaching the gospel apart from them. I knew it was right from the beginning. And yet they validated it. They recognized, verse 7, they saw that Paul was entrusted with the gospel by God himself. And verse 9, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me by God, 
They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. So they recognized that Paul was preaching the one true gospel. Paul didn't need their validation to be right, but he needed it practically to keep on his mission. That's his point here. So, so you see chapter 1? My gospel came directly from Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, the Jerusalem apostles agree with me. Agreed with me when we met. That matters. They recognize the grace that was given to me. They recognize the gospel. So what's the application for us? The application for us is we must preserve the gospel. We must preserve the true gospel. And that true go- in that true gospel, we're not measured by what we accomplish. Today, if we were to say to someone, you must be circumcised to be saved, that seems like a rather silly requirement, doesn't it? But of course... But, of course, that's what the Old Testament says. Many of us just don't know the Old Testament, and people in our society don't know the Old Testament. But there's been a shift in the history of salvation. Circumcision is no longer required. And no work of the law is required for salvation. Yet people still measure themselves by what they do in terms of salvation, sometimes by rather silly things, even in terms of... uh, their sense of validation before God. I remember, this wasn't for salvation, but I remember when I was in seminary, the professor said, turn to the book of Nehemiah, and the student next to me couldn't find it. And he was so frustrated. I mean, he was extremely frustrated, and he turned to me and he said, I might as well just leave seminary. I can't even find the book of Nehemiah. Well, that's measuring ourselves by something that's trivial, isn't it? To say you should leave seminary because you can't find the book of Nehemiah, that's a trivial thing. It's a good thing to be able to find Nehemiah. But how important is it ultimately to God? Not that important, is it? Not something God would want us to get discouraged about. But I, I would hasten to say that we all tend to get discouraged about things that may not matter to God, and yet we would think they're the basis or foundation of our relationship with God, which would seem quite silly to someone else. And yet we get very concerned about them. And in fact, we may feel good about ourselves for doing certain things. We may be a type A kind of person, and we've accomplished this and this and this, and actually, inadvertently perhaps, maybe even unconsciously, we feel better before God because of these things because it makes us feel like we're significant and we've accomplished something. And yet, perhaps, God doesn't even care much about those things we think are so important. Before Him, they're quite insignificant. And there may be other things that are very important to Him that we're ignoring and are outside our field of vision. Didn't that not happen to the Pharisees? Did they not feel good about the things they were doing before God and feel satisfied with themselves? They did their devotions every day, I take it. And yet, they weren't right before God. The gospel reminds us that God smiles upon us because of what Christ has done for us, because of, because of His death on our behalf. If you're an unbeliever with us today, if you don't know Christ, you cannot be right with God by what you accomplish for Him. You can only be right with God by accepting what He has done for you in Jesus Christ and putting your faith 
and your trust in Him. The gospel frees us from any kind of works righteousness. That freedom of the gospel, this is my second point, that freedom of the gospel is realized in freedom from the law. Isn't it interesting in verse 4, he says about these false brothers, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, insidiously wormed themselves in, right? Who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. the, The false gospel enslaves and it destroys freedom. And freedom means that we're right with God, not based on what we do ultimately, but based on what Christ has done for us. I love that little jingle or poem by John Bunyan. You know it, some of you. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Isn't that a great poem? The the law says run, do, act, and God will be pleased with you. The gospel frees us and gives us feet and hands. The gospel is liberating. I think one of the persons who understands this so well in our culture today is Tim Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian in New York, where he says the gospel is the answer to every problem that we have. Say we're discouraged. This is what Keller says about discouragement. What's the moralistic, self-righteous answer to discouragement? Of course, we can apply this to everything. And the answer is, don't be discouraged. It's wrong. And of course it is wrong, isn't it, ultimately? Not to be trusting in God. You're breaking the rules if you're discouraged. The relativist says, just love and accept yourself. The the reason you're discouraged is you're putting things on yourself you shouldn't be putting on yourself. You're free. That's the relativist. The gospel says, more profoundly, what God has become so important to me that I'm discouraged right now. What am I trusting in instead of God at this time? How how am I trusting in myself instead of trusting in what God has done for me in Christ? Of course, I don't want to be simplistic, but we can apply this even to physical health, can't we? We might think we're only valuable to God and to others if we can do things for them. We can accomplish things. But if God takes away our health, if we become sick, physical pain enters in, we become disabled in some way. Maybe that's you today. Disabled in a significant way. Of course, for all of us in this room, that may be our destiny before our final destiny, right? We may become disabled. We may not be able to leave our houses. Physical pain takes away, can, our joy and freedom, though. We, we can become very cast down because of this. Of course, in one way, that's, that's not wrong, is it? I mean, that's a, that's a mark of sin entering into the world, isn't it? That, that's one of the consequences of sin. We're reminded, we're reminded 
With, God gives us lots of illustrations. We're reminded with every wrinkle, aren't we? Every injury of the consequences of sin. Every sickness, God's reminding us of what sin does in our world. Physical disease is a sign of sin, and it should be fought against. On the other hand, the gospel says if you are laying on your bed and you can't do anything else but lay on your bed, you're pleasing to God if you trust Him and look to Christ. Because we're, we're not pleasing to God based on what we do, ultimately. We don't have to be accomplishing things to ultimately be significant, although we long to accomplish things. But if God has ordained that we're to do nothing, that's a struggle, isn't it? But we rest in that. This is what God has called me to do, to please Him laying in a bed. And maybe some of us, maybe me, perhaps we'll spend years doing that. No one would want that. But we trust in the gospel. We trust in our God. The freedom of the gospel is realized in freedom from the law as the basis of our relationship with God. Thirdly, the freedom of the gospel is expressed in respect for, but not worship of, leaders. We respect leaders, but we don't worship leaders. I, I see this throughout this text. Again and again, Paul speaks of Peter, James, and John, the bigwigs, so to speak, those of reputation, those who are influential. I don't, I don't think Paul is using this term to say that they had no stature at all. In fact, in ver, what is it, verse 9, where he calls them pillars? This is my read on this. I think Paul sees them as pillars in the new temple of God, which is the church of Jesus Christ. They're the pillars in the temple. They're the foundation of the new people of God. Peter, James, and John are the... The foundation. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And they're the pillars in this temple. Of course, so is Paul. Paul is an apostle. So, so God has given them. God has given them significant authority. Still, Paul says, because his gospel comes from God, verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Paul respects them, but he doesn't venerate and worship them. I don't care what they were, he says. I've got the gospel. I don't depend on human leaders. We should respect human leaders, but not give them final authority. It's just fine with us as elders. If you disagree with us in this church, respectfully, right? We know we can be wrong on things. We don't expect. We know we're not right on any everything. Not anything. <laughs> but we do pray for wisdom in what we do, ultimately. But the final authority is not in us. It's in the gospel, isn't it? The gospel is where the authority is, not in human leaders. The legalistic approach worships, basically, venerates human leaders with the hope that they'll respect us too. That's, that's a legalistic approach. I'll, I'll feel better about myself if these important people love me. The libertine approach says, I don't respect anybody. Fails to respect any human leader. The gospel honors leaders, but doesn't venerate them. That's a fine line, isn't it? 
Isn't that what Luther said? A Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. Subject to no human leader in one sense. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone and serves. You know, I thought of it this week with with John Piper coming to our chapel at Southern Seminary. And John has had a tremendous influence on me. What a great man of God. Or somebody like John MacArthur. It's tempting, isn't it, to worship and people like that. And just, wow. That's a danger, isn't it? Worshiping a man, venerating a man instead of God. On the other hand, you may find out, you will find out, anybody you get to know, oh, John MacArthur has faults. He's not perfect. And then despise him. Then, oh, I'm not going to have anything to do with a person like that anymore. They have faults? Neither way is the freedom of the gospel, is it? Because the freedom of the gospel honors leaders but doesn't venerate them because they're all fallible, as we'll see with Peter next week. Everyone falls short. Paul, Paul, Paul follows the gospel here, doesn't he? Respecting leaders, not worshiping leaders. Finally, quickly, the freedom of the gospel is expressed in the freedom to give to others. Chapter 2, verse 10, the only thing they asked me, nothing about adding to the gospel, is to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul had already been giving to the poor. Freedom from the law does not mean freedom from all moral responsibility, does it? It doesn't mean that we don't care for others. When the gospel invades our lives, it frees us up to serve others. But, but not, to, not to receive respect from them, ultimately. Not to be right with God. We're right with God because of what Christ has done for us, but out of the overflow of love of what God has done for us in Christ. The moralist approach says, I'm going to serve others so that they'll value me and I'll be respected and honored. The libertine says, I don't care what anyone thinks. I'll just satisfy myself. The gospel says, I'm going to serve because God has loved me in Christ. You know, I think, of, I think of a friend of mine who uh, teaches at Northwestern College in Minnesota. One of his relatives needed a kin- kidney, and he was a match, and he gave one of his kidneys to his relative. And it was his own idea. No one suggested it to him. And, and when I talked to him about it, he was so happy to have done that. You know, it set him back physically for some time, and of course he only has one kidney. Did he say, oh, I, I guess I should do that. But I don't want to. That wasn't his attitude. He wanted to do it. And he, when I talked to him, he was delighted with the fact that he could help his uncle. That's from the gospel. Serving another from the gospel. And we who are informed by the gospel ask ourselves, who can I serve in this body? How can I serve this body? How can I help other Christians? That's the freedom of the gospel, isn't it? We're Lord's of all. We reign in Christ. But we're servants of all, aren't we? But not, not to establish our righteousness. Not to receive validation from others. But out of the outflow of the love of God that is given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. May that be our portion.
Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for the gospel. How we need to relearn it, as Luther said every day. How easily Satan subverts us from the freedom of the gospel. How easily we are turned away from the straight way. Help us, Lord, to understand it. Help us, Lord, to walk in the grace of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.